So, so we are continuing a series that we started three weeks ago. So this is our, our third week in the letter to the Hebrews. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. And so, again, I, I, if, you're, if, you're a, if it's your first time here, I want you to know that you should bring your Bible every week. Um, we are going to be looking at the Bible together. That, that is our, our course subject. That's our guide. That's our textbook. And so every week, uh, I want to be pointing you back to the scripture. So we're going to read Hebrews 2, uh, verses 1 through 4 in just a moment. But at the outset, I just want to kind of give a, a preface to this, because in this passage here in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, we have what is the first of, of what will be five warning passages. And so in the book of Hebrews, there are these five passages that are classified as, as warning passages. And so there's one in chapter 2, we'll, we'll see one later in, in chapter 3, there's one in chapter 6, there's one in chapter 10, and then there's the fifth one in chapter 12. And so we'll, we'll come to these um, in coming weeks and months. The, the, the most common one is in chapter 3 that we'll look at. Um, because in, in, in Hebrews chapter 3, that warning passage uh, is, is, can be very confusing, okay? Because, because the things are said in Hebrews chapter uh, 6 that people say, well, what in the world is this about? Um, and so we'll, we'll say more about those in the coming weeks. But here at the outset, because chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is, is the first in this warning passage, I just, I just want to kind of set the groundwork um, for how these warnings function, um, I, I want to just kind of lay out here so, so that we'll, we'll have kind of a, um, an understanding when we get to these later ones, who the warning's giving to, what the warning is actually is, uh, and what the consequences of, of failing to heed the warning are. Okay, and so here, just to give you a heads up at the outset, as we come to this first warning, um, how I understand these warnings, this one included, and everyone that's to come, I believe that every warning in the book of Hebrews is a real warning that is addressed to... Christians and presents real consequences for failing to heed them. Okay, I think they are legitimate warnings that ought to be heeded by the Christian. So real warnings for real people that have real consequences. And, and hopefully today as we look through verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, you'll see that very, very plainly, very clearly. And so as we see today's warning, as we'll read in a, in a second, the warning is simply this. If you refuse to pay attention to what God has said in Christ through the Son, if you refuse to pay attention, pay attention to it, if you drift away from what God has said through Christ, you will not escape God's judgment. That's the warning. And that shouldn't be controversial. If you drift from Christ in the gospel, you will not escape God's wrath. Perseverance in the faith is necessary. Holding fast and not drifting is required. And this idea doesn't contradict or negate the idea of once saved, always saved. It simply clarifies. It clarifies that perseverance is based upon steadfastness to Christ and not to walking some aisle or saying some prayer. Perseverance is based upon my steadfastness to Christ. It's not based upon a decision that I made one time at one point. And so if you prayed a prayer or you walked an aisle and you got baptized at some point in the past, but you couldn't care less about Christ today... Or if you refuse to, to regularly gather with God's people today, if you, if you refuse to pursue a godly life today, if you refuse to actively hold fast to Christ today, you ought not have any assurance of salvation. That's the point. If you trust Christ, you trust him until the end. That, that's what it means. And so perseverance is, is based upon my, my holding fast to Christ. 
And so, so in, if you're to ask me, well, well, how do you know that you're saved? I don't point back to, to when I was eight years old at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newport News and, and, and walking forward and making a decision. I think that's when I was converted. I think that's when I was saved. But I don't point back to that to, to give me salvation or, or to give me assurance of my salvation. Instead, I look to Christ now and I say, I need Jesus today on October 25th, 2020, just as much as I needed him back then. I cast my sin upon Christ now, today. I rejoice in the mercy he's shown me now, today. The nowness of my faith is the basis of my perseverance and my assurance of salvation. Which is why these warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews are for Christians. Because if you're here and you're a Christian, you must persevere in your faith. You must hold fast to Christ today and tomorrow and next week and next year until your eyes close in death. You must hold fast to Christ. I mean, this is what we tell the baby Christian, someone who just comes to faith in Christ. We say, hold fast to Jesus. Keep trusting him. And this is what we ought to say to the old, veteran, mature Christian. Hold fast to Christ. Holding fast to Christ is is how we encourage and, and how we call Christians to to respond. We don't say, hey, you're okay because look in your Bible at the date you were saved because that, that, that ensures you that you're saved. No, there are lots of people who have dates written in the back of their Bibles who've walked aisles who are as lost now as they were then. We don't look to writing on, 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 a, on a Bible in pen. No, we, we look to our, our faith today and say, I'm trusting in Christ. And so like I said, the five warning passages in Hebrews, and, and today it's, it's probably the first or today is the first and probably the least controversial, I just want to kind of set the stage. I think that these are real warnings. And we'll see that in the coming weeks and months. But, but I just wanted you to be aware of, of kind of the warning passages because we're going to come to the first one here. And so with, with all that uh, having been said, let's, let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So you, you can follow along as I read. I'm going to read Hebrews 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and this will be the passage that we look at. So Hebrews 4, or Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience to that message received a just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God himself also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And that's where we'll stop. Let let me pray uh, before we, we go further. Father, I pray, I pray that we who are your people gathered here today, that that this word, that this warning, this exhortation would would generate, would promote and provoke our faith and our love and worship of Christ. And pray that those here who who don't know Christ, who aren't trusting him, I, I pray that they would be awakened to the necessity of listening to the message that has come through him. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, as we work through these, it's only four verses, and so we've got, we've got two sections that, that we're going to work through. So, so we'll see there in verse 1, the first point we'll cover is the warning itself, and that's verse 1, the warning itself. And then we'll look, verses 2 through 4, where, where the author lays out the rationale that supports the warning. 
Okay, so verse one is the most important verse. That, that's the main idea. And then verses two, three, and four support that main idea. And we'll see that as we walk through. But first, let's start with verse one, the warning. Again, the main idea of the passage. This is the exhortation. And this will actually, this will be a pattern here that's developing here early in Hebrews that will follow throughout this letter. And the pattern is exposition or teaching, explaining what is true, followed by exhortation. Okay, so there's this truth, there's this teaching, then there's exhortation or an urging people to do something in light of what's just been said. And so in verse one, notice the first word, at least in, in, in most English translations, is therefore. The exhortation begins, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. And so before even looking at the exhortation, notice the word therefore. He begins with therefore because the warning is based on all that he's just said in chapter one, it leading to chapter two. And so the warning is based on, on all that we've talked about the past two weeks. The exhortation is based on what's just come. And so think about how, how Hebrews one began. Where, where verse one of the entire letter says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke in who? To us through whom? To, to us through his son. And this son, the rest of chapter one, is spent explaining that this son is none other than the Lord himself and, and his identity as, as the Messiah, as the Lord. And so he's gone to great lengths to, to, to highlight the identity of this son through whom this message has come. And it sets the stage for the beginning of chapter two because he, he tells them, you ought to treat the message that's come from you to you through the son differently because of the identity of the one through whom it's come. That's his whole point. The son is superior. That's been his, that's been his one refrain. The son is greater. The son is superior to all things, but specifically he's superior to the angels. Therefore, the word that's been spoken by him must be heeded because the son is superior Verse one of chapter two begins, because the son is superior, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. That's the message. The message that he's talking about they've heard is come through the son. And so the exhortation is pay attention. Pay attention to what's been said through the son. If you notice, it, it, no matter what your English translation, none of the translations word the warning as a simple, hey, just pay attention. No, they all have an emphasis. So, so the ESV says we must pay much closer attention Attention, Or if you have the King James, we ought to give the more earnest heed. Or the NIV says we must pay the most careful attention. And so the warning isn't just pay attention. The warning is to pay much closer, more earnest, most careful attention to the message that has come through the Son. And so that's the positive. Pay much closer attention. But there's also a negative. And the negative is what will happen if careful attention isn't paid. And so what's the danger that's laid out there in verse 1? Pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Why? Lest what happen? Lest we drift away from it. And so, and so the, the logic of this warning is, is pretty simple. Pay careful attention so that you don't drift. Or the King James. We ought to give the most earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. It's, it's like a ring falling off the finger, slipping, losing. That, that, that's the word, Drifting. Another way maybe to paraphrase this warning is switching around the order is to say, we will certainly drift from the message that we've heard if we don't pay careful attention to it. And so the author of Hebrews has in mind a dangerous drift, a drift that's been suffered by God's people throughout the Old Testament, which we'll see in a minute. But first, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to relationship between paying attention and drifting, that, that we get the logic here. 
And, and so I've got a few illustrations that I think will convey the dynamic at work. And so th- this past week, uh, it's, it's getting that time of the year when we cut the grass more regularly. And so I have two, two children that, that are of grass cutting age, in my opinion. And so this past week, our grass was getting long. So I, I took the oldest in the second oldest out, and I was like, I'm going to teach these kids how to cut the grass, right? This will be good for me in the long run, and they'll learn some, some responsibility. And, and so I started with, with our son, and I taught him just like I remember being taught when I, when I was probably his age. And, and that is, you keep the wheels inside the line that you've just cut. Right? You, you keep the wheels inside the line. You follow the line. That, that's, you got to fo- you stay on the line, and when you're done, if you stayed in the line... Stri- stripe after stripe after stripe. It's, it's actually a pretty rewarding feeling to, to look over a clean, well-cut lawn with straight lines. And so I said, just follow the line. Pay attention. And what I found as they're learning, the lawnmower is a little heavy for, for, for my kids. And, and so they, our lawnmower has a little, a little uh, self-propel thing that I said, don't do that. You're, you're not able to. Of course, that's what they do. Um, and so because they can't push it, they're, they're either head down, not following, not looking at the line, and so going all over, or they think, hey, I'm going to press this self-propel, and they're all over the place, and the front wheels are, are, are coming up off the ground. And so, and so I patiently, I said, hey, okay, that's fine. We, we've got zigzags all over our yard. Um, but, but I kept reminding them, just follow those lines. Follow those lines, because when you don't follow the lines, you drift, or if you're not watching, you drift, and, and our lawn doesn't look nice. Okay, so, so when it comes to grass, we must pay attention or we'll drift. The same is true when it comes to, to, to maybe the practice of driving. So think about if, if many of you um, ha, have driven long miles on interstate, traveling. Maybe when you're dating, you, you made lots of trips. Um, driving on the interstate can be a very scary thing, especially late at night or, or long hours. There's great danger in drifting. A failure to pay, to pay attention to the road can lead to dangerous drifting. In fact, the interstates have these things called rumble strips, right? Rumble strips, and, and these are these little bumps on, on, all off the side that, that as soon as you go off, there, there's the, the loud noise, and it, they're there to prevent you from, from, from veering off into a guardrail or even worse. And in fact, there's even cars now. Maybe some of you have the uh, newer car that, that has this fancy feature that somehow it knows when you're out of the lane, and there's like a, a vibration in the wheel and, and a beeping. It's so that, so that you don't veer off, that, that you don't drift. Because when it comes to driving, if, if we don't pay attention, we will drift and there will be consequences. And, and so that's the logic here that, that's being laid out in Hebrews 2. Pay attention because if you don't, you're going to drift. And while these examples, I think they help us understand the logic of the warning. These are the, the relationship between paying attention and drifting. These examples really fall short. They don't go far enough because they're not really that serious. But the warning in Hebrews could not be more serious. And so the warning in Hebrews isn't just, hey, you're going to have a messy lawn or, or maybe you're going to hit a guardrail. The warning issued in Hebrews is if you drift, you will not escape. And it could not be more serious. And so the point that the author's been making in Hebrews is that the final word has come and this word through the Son is from God. And the drifting here that he has in mind in Hebrews 2 isn't a drifting that will simply lead to to, to non-serious consequences. The drifting here is a drifting that will lead, as we'll see, to eternal death and judgment. And it is a serious warning. 
And so to further explain that the seriousness of this warning, the author spends the, the next three verses, verses two, three, and four, laying out the, the rationale for this argument, for this warning. So, so let's look there at verses two through four and the rationale that the author lays out. And, and so verses two, three, and four, there, there's really two parts to this, to this, to this rationale. Okay, and so, so the first part, he, he compares this first, uh, a first message with the final message. So that's verse two and into the first part of chapter three. And then the second part of this, this rationale is the overwhelming support or the reliability in favor of this final word. And that's the second part of verse three into verse four. And so the rationale, rationale begins with mentioning the message declared by angels. So you see there in verse two, for, the, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. So he mentions angels there. The angels are mentioned here, and they're mentioned here in this rationale, explains why the end of, of chapter one, the author went out of his way to show the superiority of the son to, to the angels. You start talking about angels in chapter one, you're like, well, what's he talking about angels for? Are the people worshiping angels? Well, well maybe, but, but, but more likely, more than likely, he mentions angels so that he can issue this warning to say, hey, the message that came from angels had serious consequences when you disobeyed it. So the superior son that's brought the message will have even worse consequences. And so verse two, the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and he continues in verse two, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And so the message here that he's talking to, or a just recompense, maybe you have the the King James. So, So the first message that came from angels had consequences. And the message he's referring to is the revelation of God to Moses and to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. That, that's what he's talking about, the, 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 the most well-known revelation of God's will to his people in the Old Covenant. And that was on Mount Sinai. And so the message here is the message that came to, to the people, to Moses on Sinai. It was the giving of the law. And he says that this first message was, was declared by angels. Now, if you, if you flip to the Exodus account of, of Moses on Mount Sinai, there's no mention of angels. So well, what's he talking about? There's no angels in, in Exodus, but there are other accounts right, that, that make it very clear that, that there was the assumption, the understanding that, that angels accompanied the Lord on Sinai. And so I'm just going to mention a few of these. And so Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 talks about the Lord coming from Sinai and there's this mention of, of thousands of angels were with him. Okay, so it's Deuteronomy 33, two. But, but the two, I think, most clear other instances are, are in the New Testament. And so write down Galatians 3.19 where Paul is building his argument in the book of Galatians. But, but notice this phrase that he says. He's talking about the law. He's talking about faith. But he says, why this is, this is Galatians 3.19. Why then the law... It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it, talking about the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And so, so that's the point that Paul's making, that, is that it came through angels, through, through Moses there. In, in Paul's context, is he's emphasizing the role of Moses. But here, in Hebrews, it's the role of angels. And the other place is, is the speech of Stephen in Acts 7. And so in Acts 7, listen, listen to how Stephen, so remember Stephen is on trial for his life. He's about, to be, he's about to be stoned. And he's saying, hey, you Israelites, you Jews, you've always rejected God's anointed ones. It's always been the case. And you've rejected Jesus. And they say, we, we're not listening. And they kill him. And so, so he's, he's one of the first martyrs. But, but notice what he says. This is Acts 7, beginning verse 37. This is, this is Stephen speaking to, to the, the Jewish leaders. He's saying, this 
is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living oracles to give to us. So you, and this is down in verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so twice in Stephen's speech, he references the role of angels in the delivery of the law. And so, so, so this, is, this is the accepted tradition. This is how Moses received the law, that, that angels played a significant role in the delivery of the law. And that's why angels were mentioned in chapter one, so that now he can, he can make his exhortation, his warning to say, it came with, with great consequences when angels gave the, the message. Now the superior son has given a message. The consequences are gonna be much worse if we disobey or if we neglect. And so this message declared by angels, looking back at Hebrews 2, verse 2, was both reliable and a refusal to listen to it or to obey was punished. And, it's, it, and, and that is the author's point in bringing up this first message. If the law with its angelic mediation had sanctions that were severe and inescapable, then how much more serious would the neglect of the message proclaimed by the Son of God who is greater than angels? And so that, that's his warning, that's his point. And so, and so just think about, I, I think I have these passages listed, think about the severity of disobeying the law that came through, the, through Moses on Sinai. So, so think about Exodus chapter 32. So, so you're probably familiar with Aaron, and, and so Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and, and Aaron and the Israelites are like, hey, we're, we're tired of waiting, something's happened to him. Hey, Aaron, you, you're second in command, you make a God for us to worship. And you all know what happens. They, all, they, 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 they gather all their gold and they put it in the fire and, and they, they form a, a golden calf that then they worship and say, this golden calf is the God who delivered us. Right? So that's what happens. And Moses is up on the mountain. He comes down. What, what in the world happened, Aaron? And Aaron lies and says, well, well, it wasn't me. It was the people. They made me do it. And, and we just threw it in and, and ta-da, look at what happened. We, which clearly wasn't the case. But in the aftermath, you know the story, do you know what happened after that? Do you know the consequence that, that, that the Israelites paid for, for, for worshiping a, a false idol? Moses caused the Levites to, to step across and, and, and to ally themselves with the God who had delivered them. The Israelites had broken loose from the Lord. They neglected the Lord and 3,000 of them were killed because of their disobedience. I mean, that's severe. That's the consequence for, for disobeying the word that, that came through angels. Leviticus 10, another occurrence, versus just the first two verses of Leviticus 10. There, there's these two, two men, Nadab and Abihu. They happen to be sons of Aaron. So Aaron's the, the, the priest and his sons are now priests and, and they're responsible for offering acceptable sacrifices. There, there's lots of, of, of specifics and rules that they have to follow as they offer uh, sacrifices on behalf of the people and themselves. And in Leviticus 10, these sons of Aaron, they each took his censer and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Okay, so they're disobeying the clear commands. Verse two of Leviticus 10, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, his brother, right? So Moses, his two nephews have just been consumed by this fire for offering unauthorized fire. And Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be set apart. 
and before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, they attempted to worship me in ways that I had not commanded them to. So I will consume them because you must follow the regulations. And Aaron, when he heard this, Leviticus 10.2 says, and Aaron held his peace because he knew. He knew that the consequence was just, the recompense was just and fitting to, to what they had done. And, and the last one I'll mention is, is Numbers 15. Numbers 15, 36 through 32, there, there's this issue with a, a Sabbath breaker. And so this, this man who, who decides to gather sticks on the Sabbath, which had clearly been prohibited, that the Sabbath was not a day for, for working. And again, this is Old Covenant. If you guys need to go home and, and gather some leaves, you can do that today, okay? Right, so this is Old Covenant, but the, this man is clearly breaking the Sabbath, and so he's brought out before the congregation, and, and he's stoned because he has violated the clear prohibitions, right? There's consequences, severe consequences, just retribution for breaking the word that came through the angels, and so the list could go on, but, but the point is that law-breaking, refusing to heed the commands of the Lord under the old covenant, these things were not taken lightly. Every transgression, all disobedience was met with just retribution. There was a consequence, there was a cost for refusing to heed the word of the Lord. And the point in establishing that is so that the author of Hebrews can then ask the piercing question of verse three. The piercing question of verse three how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, if there was cost for disobedience under the old covenant that was great and severe, if refusing to hear to the message declared by angels meant punishment and pretty, pretty extreme punishment, get ready, how much more, how much greater is the punishment gonna be for those who refuse the message declared by the superior son, who is far greater than any angel? Then the whole host of angels combined, the son is superior. And so his warning, he's warning the audience that the just retribution that will come from neglecting the message from the son will be far worse than anything that happened under the old covenant. And I, I just think we need to let that settle. That is the logic here. And we, we, we particularly need to let it settle because it's common for, for new covenant believers and really lots of people with just a, a basic or, or general understanding of Christianity to think in the exact opposite direction. And here's what I mean. It's common, maybe you think this, but, but, but I would ask you to, to, to weigh this thought with what the author of Hebrews is arguing. But because it's often said, yes, God was severe in the Old Testament. Yeah, he was angry, yes, he punished people, yes, he wiped out nations. But that all changed in the New Testament. Jesus has come. And now it is often said, God is loving and full of grace, which that's true. But, but in line of this argument, it's, it's as though Jesus coming changes the vengeance or, or the severity of God's justice. And the author of Hebrews, again, is arguing in the exact opposite direction. Because he's saying, if you think that neglecting the message from angels was bad, if you think God was angry in the Old Testament, just imagine what waits those who neglect the message from the Son. Just imagine the retribution, the recompense for refusing the word that has come through the Son. It's going to be worse. How shall we escape? That's a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is we're not. We won't escape if we neglect, if we drift from the message that's come through the Son. And so, and so let me just at this point, I think it's helpful and important for me to clarify 
so we're all on the same page, that, that this message that's come from the Son, the, the message, the word that's come through the Son, it cannot be, and it is not intended to be separated from the person of the Son. It's one and the same. The message of the Son and the person of the Son are one and the same. They, they, they're inseparable. And so in other words, to pay attention to what we've heard is to pay attention to Christ. To pay attention to what we've heard is to pay attention to the content of the message that's been spoken through the Son. And that is the message, as we see here, is the message of great salvation. That's what it says, isn't it? How shall we neglect if we ne- how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Which means that in the Son, God has revealed a great salvation. A great salvation has, has been made known, has been revealed in the Son. In the Son, in the, in the revelation of the Son, in the sending of the Son, in the incarnation, in the life, in the death of the Son, God has revealed a way by which sins can be purified, a, a means by which sins can be forgiven. And to neglect that way, to neglect that great salvation will only lead to God's final judgment. God has made a way, but if you don't take the way, you're not going to escape. And so instead of focusing on not being able to escape, why don't we focus on the great salvation that's come through the Son? And so so a brief point of application here. I just want to to let this be known that there is great responsibility that, that falls upon those who have heard. There's a great responsibility for those who have heard. And so this is a warning here in Hebrews is for those who have heard. The author, notice he includes himself in the group. He says, we must pay much closer attention. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so I just want to say that that, that I'm fairly certain that, that all of you, or at least the vast majority of you listening to me have heard the good news of the gospel. You've, you've heard the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you've heard of, of the great salvation that has been, been made available. I'm assuming that, that the vast majority of you know the gospel. But the warning here is that knowing isn't enough. We must pay much closer attention We must not drift. We must not neglect the great salvation, which is simply say, if you believed it once, that's not enough. You can believe once and then walk away and neglect and drift. You can make a decision at one point in your life and then then neglect it for decades. And these verses place enormous responsibility on you who have heard and know the gospel. Are you holding fast to it? Are you paying much closer attention to it? Are Are you embracing the salvation that's come through that message? And so once you hear, once you know, you must pay attention, you must not drift, you must not fall away, you must not grow cold, you must not forsake him. Because, notice the warning, drifting from Christ, slipping away, neglecting his salvation, abandons the only path to life. Forsaking the way that comes through Christ is forsaking the only way of escape. If you you get off this road, you're not going to escape. And that's true. That's real. That's a real warning. If you drift from the way of salvation, you will not escape. Christ is the solution, but, but he must be held to and paid attention to and not drifted from. And so the warning passage here in Hebrews, along with the, all those that are going to come, are intended to warn you. So the author's saying, not hypothetically, but really, if you drift away from Christ, if you neglect him, if you forsake him, if you refuse to heed his word, you will not escape the final judgment. In fact, how could you? Because apart from Christ, how can anyone be saved? The answer is you can't. No one can. 
And so the call for all of us, myself included, from these verses is to pay attention. Heed the message. And I'll say more about this in just a minute, but, but getting back, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, getting back to the rationale that's laid out here, He's compared the first message and the final message, as we've just covered. But then in the second half of these verses, in verses, the second half of verse 3 and into verse 4, he appears to go out of his way to emphasize the reliability of the message that's come through the Son. So he notes numerous levels of, of affirmation. And so he says, hey, here's why this message from the Son is reliable. And he, he's listing, ticking off the, these these means of affirmation in order to show the significance and the superiority, superiority of this final word, which would further emphasize why we must pay attention to it and not neglect it. You see, it's part of, the, part of the main argument here. He's piling on the evidence in favor of heeding the message from the son. It would be enough to say the son's superior, so listen to him, but he's gonna continue to, to add on evidence. So, that, so look there in the middle of verse three. After he asked that, that piercing question, how shall we escape? Notice he continues, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so notice, why is the message reliable? First, he says, the Lord himself declared it. Clearly a reverence to the life and ministry of Jesus himself, the son who became a man, who came and lived on this earth and, and when Jesus was here, he proclaimed a message he made bold statements. He made claims that, that were not normal. He, he wasn't just a, a, a moral teacher who said, hey, if you want to live your best life, just, just follow these few pieces of advice. No, he made claims that, that no person in their right mind would make unless they were the son of God. I have authority to forgive your sins, he would say. I'm gonna lay down my life for my sheep. The kingdom of God is at hand in my appearance now. He comes proclaiming a message unlike any message that had come before, a unique and a final word from the divine son, from the Lord himself. And so, so Hebrews 3 says the Lord himself declared it, but that's not all. The, the, the author of Hebrews and, and those he's writing to, they hadn't heard directly from the lips of Jesus, but he says it was declared to us by those who heard. So the, so the eyewitnesses heard it and they've proclaimed it to us. So we've, we've heard the message. And unlike those who might view the New Testament documents and the eyewitness testimony of the gospel as, as suspect, the author of Hebrews actually views the declaration of those who have heard, the declaration of the message by the disciples and the apostles who learned from Jesus, the author of Hebrews views their testimony as, as reliable. In fact, furthering the reliability. This is an argument for the reliability of the eyewitness testimony, something that was valued. He says, we heard it from the mouth of the eyewitnesses, which, which would have been received with, wow, then it must carry weight. And so it's easy, I think, in today's world to buy the line that, well, the New Testament documents are not reliable. They're filled with error. Um, here's this issue. Here's what this, um, here's what this History Channel special said. And here's this and this. It's easier to buy those and say, oh, yeah, it's all, it's, all, it's all corrupt. Or it's not true. And it's often considered common sense that we must have a certain sense of skepticism when, when it comes to reading the New Testament. Well, that's normal. Yeah, you have to be skeptical. Because, yeah, that, that, those are a long time ago. But the author of Hebrews, and, and I'll add the majority of the Christian church throughout the entire history of the church, has said, especially in regards to the gospel, that these are eyewitness accounts. They're recorded by those who were there and from the very lips of those who were there. And skepticism, therefore, is not required. All that's necessary is to take these writings on their own terms. Luke says, I've written to give you an orderly account. Well, well we can assume he's giving us an orderly account. 
And so all that's necessary is we take these writings on their own terms as we read them as they actual, actually are, as eyewitness accounts of the events of the teachings and miracles of the life of Jesus. So, so we can say, well, could that really happen? Could a dead man really raise from the dead? We, we, can, we, can, we can ask that question, but we shouldn't ask, well, well why did he write that? He, he's just making it up. No, these are eyewitness accounts to be read on their own terms. And as you do... It becomes evident that the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, as you read these New Testament accounts, the, this, this life was for one purpose. He came for a very specific purpose, and that was to accomplish a great salvation. He came, God became a man to live among us to accomplish salvation for God's people as the final word. As the final word from God to his people. And that's what the author of Hebrews is emphasizing it was proclaimed by the Lord himself, and then it was proclaimed by those who were with him. And remember, his point is the reliability of their witness, of their testimony. I mean, one commentator commented on this says, salvation is not an idea or a myth or a theory. It's plain fact. I mean, Christianity is built on, on these facts. If you deny these facts, you deny Christianity. And so he says, the Lord himself declared it, but then it was, it was, it was declared to us by the eyewitnesses, by those who heard from him. But notice that's not where he stops. Verse four, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, we don't have to go into detail on all these categories. We simply recognize how God bearing witness through these things emphasizes the reliability of the message. That's his whole point. God himself bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit. And so this verse, it tells us how to interpret all the signs and wonders and miracles, as well as how to interpret the giving of the Holy Spirit. All of these things, the author of Hebrews says, were done by God himself in order to confirm or to bear witness to the fact that, that the gospel, that the sending of the Son was from him. It's confirmation, it's validation. This means as you're reading through your New Testament, you encounter a miracle in the Gospels or, or a miracle in the book of Acts. You don't stop and say, wow, what an what a, what a amazing miracle. Wow, I wish I could do that. No, you don't. that's not the point. The point of those things is not for us to get caught up with them. The point for those things is for us to get caught up with the ministry, the message that they are identified with, and that is the ministry message of Jesus. The miracles point to the ministry of Jesus, to confirm it, to validate it. I mean, this is the same that happened in the Old Testament. Think about the, the prophets Elijah and Elisha. These, these miracles attested, these are from the Lord. And, and the same is true with Jesus and the apostles and the disciples in the book of Acts. I mean, if you just read through the book of Acts over and over and over, I mean, there's some crazy stuff going on, but the disciples with one refrain are saying, it, it's, it's Jesus, it's the name of Jesus, it's not us, don't worship us, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's him. These are simply intended to confirm that Jesus was not an ordinary man, that you crucified the son of God. And this message we, we preach is reliable because of these miracles. That's the rationale of the, the argument here in Hebrews 2. The message is the main thing. It's the final word. It's the gospel that has come through Christ that the author is wanting his audience to pay attention to. And so the author didn't seek to replicate the early ecstatic experience since the basis of faith was not in the miracles. The basis of faith was in the, the message of Christ that was conformed by these miracles. And so the author of Hebrews, here in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, issues what will, what will be the first of five warnings to his hearers. And it's an exhortation to pay attention and not to drift, because the message they had heard had been spoken by Christ himself and had been verified 
and validated over and over. And so as we close, I, I just want to help us apply this passage. And so I just, there, there's two categories for application. And these two categories come from verse one. The two categories, there, there's pay attention and there's don't drift. And, and so what I wanna do is I wanna ask ourselves is how can we avoid or how can we do the first, how can we pay attention and how can we avoid the second of drifting? So, so as we seek to apply, I want to ask, how can we practically and regu- regularly pay attention to what we've heard? And how can we practically and regularly avoid drifting from it? And so first category, pay attention. How do we pay attention? We want to pay attention so we don't drift. And so here's some, just some ideas. To pay attention, we focus our attention on Christ and his gospel. We are awake to the realities of the great salvation that's come to us through Christ. Just like when cutting the grass or driving on the interstate, we must pay attention. We focus. In fact, Hebrews 12, later in this book, the author will say, let us run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pay attention. We focus. There ought not to be one day that we wake up and go to sleep without considering our Savior. We think about him. We meditate on him. We remember what he's done for us. We, we rehearse what he's done for us. We rejoice in what he's done for us. One author describes it this way. We ought to be preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. Daily preach the gospel to yourself because every day you're gonna be prone to forget it. And so preach the gospel to yourself daily. Jerry Bridges is the author. Notice how, listen to how he explains it. He says, quote, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then you flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your payment for sin and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. And you remind yourself of that every day. I'm a sinner for whom Christ died. Every day. Christ died to save sinners And that's a title that we will bear until he comes again, which means that as long as I'm alive, the gospel is good news of great joy for me. And if I'm not rejoicing and rehearsing and remembering that gospel, I'm not paying attention to Christ. It's a message of great salvation. So we pay attention by meditating on the gospel daily. We we pay attention by abiding in Christ. Think John 15. We abide in Jesus we remain with him relationally, intimately. We, we are in relationship with Jesus. We abide in, in him. In, in John 15, he says that if you abide in me, or how you abide in me is you keep my commandments. This is, not, this is not possible apart from paying attention and focusing on the one who has spoken from the Father. We, we pay attention, we abide with Christ. We live our life in light of the relationship we have with Christ. We pay attention by, by encouraging one another. That's going to be a big part of the next warning in, in, in chapter 3. We're to exhort one another. Pay attention. Pay attention today. As long as it's day, we're, we're to exhort one another, to hold fast until the end. We're, we're to, to exhort, hey, hold on. I know your life is really hard right now, but hold on, there's hope. We all are prone to wander in different times, in different ways, and so we have one another to exhort one another, to help each other remember And finally, we pay attention by reminding ourselves of the danger that lurks apart from Christ. I think that's the logic of the warning. We pay attention by heeding these warnings. The one who does not hold fast until the end has no reason for confidence. That's the point of the warning passages. I mean, mean, if persevering were easy, if it were not difficult, hard, there would be no need for warnings like this one. 
There'd be no, no reason for Jesus to say, narrow is the way, and few there are that find it. If it was easy, it's a wide way. Don't, don't worry about it. It's not difficult. But that's not what we find. The warnings are necessary because it's hard to hold fast. And so we remind ourselves of, of the consequences of failing to hold fast. And so we retain in our memories and we ponder in our hearts the, the, the good news of the gospel of Christ, the message that's come to us. And so if you're here and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, the call is for you to pay attention, to obey him, to live your life in submission to him and not to drift from him. Which leads to the last category of application, which is simply don't drift. Don't drift. That's the negative. Don't drift. There's great danger in drifting. We have to just recognize that. I know you know people. I know people who have just drifted slowly, year after year, drifted and drifted. And they're gone. They've left the faith. They're no longer holding fast. There is a danger in drifting. I mean, in fact, I wonder how many Christians over, the, over these last six to eight months have slowly drifted. I mean, uh, think about the first several months of this pandemic, right? We, we could not meet as a church. Drifting was, at least to some extent, inevitable, right? God has given the gathering of his people for, for the benefit and the encouragement and the holding fast of his people. So, so it's kind of mandated to drift. But we're not there anymore. We're, we're, we're coming back together. We're, we're opening up more. And I'm afraid that many Christians are still lost at sea. And they don't even know they're lost at sea. They've drifted and they're aimlessly bobbing with the wind and the waves like a piece of driftwood from shipwreck. Not even aware of the danger. And this passage is here to wake us up. Call your friends, wake them up. There's danger in drifting. So we don't drift. Now, now drifting occurs by, 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 by need, neglecting Christ, but, but it also comes by focusing on other things. And so if we're not focusing on Christ, if we're focusing on something else, we're going to drift. And so I, I want to tread lightly here, but, but we're in the middle of a very intense political season, if you didn't know. And there's a real danger for Christians to become so consumed with what's going on in our culture that we slowly, day by day, drift. We drift. And, and our allegiance is to something else or someone else. And our focus is on something that, that isn't Christ. And when our focus is, is prioritized, is focus, when it's on something other than Christ, we are necessarily drifting from Christ. And that drifting can be caused by anything that would realign our priorities, whether it's politics. It can be something like our family. Our career, our finances, our reputation, our relationships, the list can go on. It's like the illustration about driving on the interstate. One of the most common ways to drift right, is, is to, to focus on something else, to get distracted. I mean, in today's world, right, when you're driving, it's really common to, to, for your phone to go off. Oh, I, I got to answer that. I got to read that text. Got to check that email. Next thing you know, you're, you're over in the other lane. And you're drifting because your focus was diverted from what it should have been on. Your attention isn't on the main thing. And that's the same way we drift from Christ because our priorities get confused. And this happens gradually. And if we aren't careful, we can find ourselves to have drifted much farther than we ever intended or realized. And so we just need to be aware of our, our, our temptation and tendency to drift. And so I want to close with this, this quote by, by Spurgeon. And he says, See, we don't need to be great open sinners in order to perish. It is merely a matter of neglect 
See how it's put here in this text? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You need not go to the trouble of despising it or resisting it or opposing it. You can be lost readily enough simply by neglecting it. In fact, the great mass of those who perish are those who neglect the great salvation. And so brother, sister, friend, let us not be among those who neglect so great a salvation. Let us pay much closer attention. Let us beware of drifting from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ has died, has been raised again, and has ascended to the right hand in the position of all authority. And he's done so in order to secure a sure and reliable, a great salvation for his people. Let us look to him. Let me, let me pray as we, as we close.